So we're moving on in our study of the Westminster Confession of Faith. I mean, the Westminster Shorter Catechism, sorry. I'm doing the, the Westminster Confession on Wednesdays. <laughs> the Westminster Shorter Catechism, and uh, we're at question 7 today. But we will begin, once again, by reviewing the questions that we've already done. So let's recite them, the answers in unison. Question 1, what is the chief end of man? Man's chief end is to glorify God and to enjoy Him forever. Question two, what rule hath God given to direct us how we may glorify and enjoy Him? The Word of God, which is contained in the Scriptures of the Old and New Testaments, is the only rule to direct us how we may glorify and enjoy Him. Question three, what do the Scriptures principally teach? The Scriptures principally teach what man is to believe concerning God and what duty God requires of man. Question four. What is God? God is a spirit, infinite, eternal, and unchangeable in His being, wisdom, power, holiness, justice, goodness, and truth. Question five. Are there more gods than one? There is but one only, the living and true God. Question six. How many persons are there in the Godhead? There are three persons in the Godhead, the Father and the Son and the Holy Spirit. And these three are one God, the same in substance, equal in power and glory. And today we come to question seven which introduces us to the decrees of God. We'll be looking at uh, what He has decreed. We'll be looking at that subject really all the way until the end of question 39, and uh, all the way through question 39, where we will then begin to look at our duty, sorry, no, to question 39, where we'll then begin to look at our duty to, that He requires of us. So we'll be looking at all the things in His in His providence and his decrees that God has has done for us. So today we're going to learn what the decrees are. So let's answer this question together. Question seven. What are the decrees of God? The decrees of God are his eternal purpose according to the counsel of his own will, whereby for his own glory he hath foreordained whatsoever comes to pass. Before we begin to look at this definition of what God's decrees are, I thought it'd be helpful to explain just what a decree is in a general way. The Bible often speaks about decrees made by kings. Like you have in the book of Daniel, Darius makes a decree. You remember his decree? He got um, tricked into doing it by people that were against Daniel. And the decree that he made was that no one was to pray to anyone except him, the king, and that anyone who did would be cast into the den of lions. At Jesus' birth, we're told about the decree of Caesar Augustus, that all the world should be enrolled to be taxed, and how that, that led Joseph, the uh, adopted father, I guess you'd say, of, uh, of Jesus, to, uh, to go to uh, Bethlehem where the, he was from to enroll so that Jesus was then born in Bethlehem. 
You, you can see from this that a decree that these kings make, though, is an official action that puts the purpose or the plan of the king into motion. In the case of Caesar, he decreed that all the world should be enrolled. So then everyone went to his home country to be enrolled. He put it into action with that decree. King puts his plans and purpose into effect by issuing the decree. Causes what he wants to happen by speaking it into being. We can all do this to a certain extent, can't we? We ask someone to, to bring something to us. It's like a, a word goes out and then the thing comes because somebody uh, brings that to us or something like that. For, for our scripture reading today, I've chosen a passage in which a Roman centurion spoke of the substance of this when he expressed his faith that, that Jesus could decree the healing of his servant, of this, this uh, centurion's servant, simply by saying so, by saying the word. This man understood God's decrees, and Jesus marveled that he understood so well, so that Jesus had that kind of authority. So he saw that Jesus, in other words, could speak into being whatever he wanted to speak into being. So listen now as I read it to you. It's from Luke chapter 7. It's the first uh, 10 verses, Luke 7, verse 1 through 10. Now, when he concluded all his sayings in the hearing of the people, he entered Capernaum. And a certain centurion's servant who was dear to him was sick and ready to die. So when he heard about Jesus, he sent elders of the Jews to him, pleading with him to come and heal his servant. And when they came to Jesus, they begged him earnestly, saying that the one for whom he should do this was deserving, for he loves our nation and has built us a synagogue. Then Jesus went with them, and when he was already not far from the house, the centurion sent friends to him, saying to him, Lord, do not trouble yourself, for I am not worthy that you should enter under my roof. Therefore, I did not even think myself worthy to come to you. But say the word, and my servant will be healed. For I also am a man placed under authority, having soldiers under me. And I say to one, go, and he goes. To another come, and he comes, and to my servant do this, and he does it. When Jesus heard these things, he marveled at him, and turned around and said to the crowd that followed him, I say to you, I have not found such great faith, not even in Israel. And those who were sent, returning to the house, found the servant well, who had been sick. And there we end the reading of God's holy word. May God bless the reading of his word. You can see that this man understood that Jesus had authority to decree whatever he wanted to decree. While he as a centurion could bring things about by speaking to those under his authority, like if he's on the battlefield, he could have a bunch of guys go this way and a bunch of guys go that way and other ones to take provisions from over here or over there. He saw that as he could do that, <clears throat> Jesus could speak to sickness and bring about change in that <clears throat> if he wished to do so. He understood as we must that God's decrees are like the decrees of a king or a military officer, yet much more 
much greater and much more inclusive of all things. Today, we'll look at three marvelous things about God's decrees. First, that God's decrees are His purpose. Second, that God's decrees are eternal. And third, that God's decrees are all-encompassing or that they include everything, everything whatsoever. So let's get started. God's decrees are His eternal purpose. We might say that it is God's purpose which He is going to bring into being at the time that He's chosen. He determined what He would do first, and then He began to do it at the time that He appointed. G.I. Williamson, in his little commentary, recommend it to you uh, on the Shorter Catechism. He has a little guy named Shorty, and he is shown on the decrees of God sitting at a, a drawing table. He's drawing plans for a house. And of course, that's an illustration. He decrees what he wants to be in his house. The plan is made, and then people go and build the plan. They execute the decree, but the plan was already made before the house was built. So those plans are like God's decrees. It is what he has purpose to do and what he will and what will be done when the builders or whatever it is carry out the directives of the plan. The scripture constantly presents God as one who has planned out what will be done in the world. Isn't it amazing how much this is related to what we looked at this morning? Uh, it seems like that happens all the time, but uh, it's very, very much related to how we saw the sovereignty of God in bringing all the things upon Israel that we saw this morning. In the passages that we read this afternoon from Isaiah, the Lord shows us that <clears throat> this is something that you do when you are God, when you are the true God, that you decree things and then they happen. If you look again at Isaiah 41 for just a minute, the Lord is taunting false gods here that his people were worshiping. He's telling them, if you're really gods, then explain to us what you've done in the past and why you did it, and tell us what you're going to do in the future before you do it so that we'll know about it, so we'll know what you're going to do, which is what God had been doing. See, if you look at verse Isaiah 41, verse 21, he says, present your case, says the Lord. Bring forth your strong reasons. Words, Tell us what your purposes were when these events happened in the past. Tell, tell us about that, says the king of Jacob. Verse 22, let them bring forth and show us what will happen. Tell us, tell us what's going to happen in the future. Let them show the former things what they were, that we may consider them and know the latter end of them, or declare to us the things to come. Show the things that are to come hereafter, that we may know that you are gods. Yes, do good or do evil, do, do something, you see, that we may be dismayed and see it together. Now, this is something that God could say because this is what he was doing all along in Isaiah. 
telling sometimes a few years beforehand what was going to happen in just a short future, and sometimes telling what was going to happen several hundred years later, long before it happened, and why it was going to happen. Like you have that, don't you, in Isaiah? The, the Assyrians are going to come, and they're going to destroy everything right up to Jerusalem, but they won't be able to go in Jerusalem because they're going to turn away. And, uh, it, it, you know, and, and that's exactly what happens. And then after that, he tells them the Babylonians are going to come. And he, he gives them, but the false gods, they could do no such thing. They couldn't tell you what was going to happen ahead. Only God could do that. Verse 24, he says, Indeed, you are nothing, and your work is nothing. Now, I want you to think about that. We learn from this that the one who is truly God is the one who is carrying out his plans in the earth. Who else's plans are being carried out? Nobody else has the ability to do that. The very fact that the Lord was able to say this, too, with such confidence, proves that he was actually doing this at the time of Isaiah. You know what people think about Isaiah that are unbelievers? Bible scholars that don't really believe in, in God and acknowledge God? They think that it was written after. After it all happened. Because how could he know that all this was going to happen? Well, how did he write about Jesus Christ? Because we know that was way before it happened. And how did he write about him on the cross and, and the world, the nations turning to him and all those things? But even more... How could God say this in Isaiah 41 if he said it afterward? Like, I'm going to tell you what happened. He's just writing it for the first time. What's going to happen, and it already happened. That wouldn't make any sense. He was telling them things from the past and things from the future when he wrote these things. So we shouldn't be surprised, you know, because we see the most remarkable prophecy of all fulfilled before our eyes. And that is the one, I've mentioned this prophecy to you a lot because it's way undervalued. The prophecy that says all the nations of the world, after the Messiah comes, are going to turn to him. How could God ever have told us that if it wasn't his plan that he had laid down? How could you suddenly just, how could you just know that this guy's going to appear one day and then people from all different languages and places in the world are all going to come together around him. Third of the world's population today confesses Jesus Christ all over the world. Some of them don't confess him very well, but they confess his name. So it's, it's, it's a tremendous thing what God has done. How could, how could that prophecy have been made so long ago when the circumstances did not at all point in that direction. Those prophecies were often made when they were going into exile and things like that, when their city had been destroyed. And God's saying, okay, this is my plan. You guys are going to go into exile, but then after that, I'm going to bring you back out. It's going to look like you're totally wiped out, but then I'm going to bring you back. And then later on, I'm going to send my son. And then when I do that, then the whole world's going to start confessing my name. Like, how do you, how do you go there? In the passage that we read in Isaiah, the Lord shows us that he is a true God because his plans and his work, or, or he plans his work and then works his plan. Look at Isaiah 44, 6 and 7, the other verse we read with this in mind. Look at it again. Isaiah 44, 6. Thus says the Lord, the King of Israel, and his Redeemer, the Lord of hosts, I am the first and I am the last. Beside me there is no God. And who can proclaim as I do? Then let him declare it and set it in order for me, 
Since I appointed the ancient people and the things that are coming and shall come, let them show these to them. So he's saying, I appointed the ancient people, the people that I've chosen. I'm telling you what's going to happen with them all along the way. He says, let, let one of these other gods come and tell us what's going to happen to my people. Let somebody else come and tell us what's going to happen to Moab and Ammon and Syria and all the different places that I told you about. Bring, bring them along. Let them tell if they're gods. No one else can do it. The Bible always just assumes as well that whatever happens is what God planned. If it rains, this is God sent the rain. If it doesn't rain, this is that God withheld the rain. If enemies come, God sent the enemies. If they do not, God held them back. If a nation multiplies and becomes powerful, God raised them up. That's what he said to Pharaoh. Remember, for this cause I've raised you up. That's what he said to Nebuchadnezzar. I raised you up. If they become weak, God is the one that brought them down. If an individual is saved, God is the one that saved them. If they refuse to come to him, it is because he hardened them. A lot of people deny that God has decreed whatsoever comes to pass. They deny this because they do not like what he does or because they cannot make sense of it. They say it doesn't make sense that God would do this or that. Often I think the main reason that is because they don't like what God does. They don't want the Lord to have as much control over things as he does, so they choose not to believe it, as if they could really change the truth by not believing it. <laughs> you can't do that. You, you cannot believe something, but it, it doesn't change the facts. The sad thing is that many professing Christians also deny that what we see before us is the unfolding of God's plan. They deny this even though Paul says plainly as, it, as plainly as it could be said that we are predestined. Ephesians 1.11, predestined according to the purpose of him who works all things according to the counsel of his will. God has planned everything and he carries out his plan exactly as he planned it. We must accept what scripture plainly teaches even if we find it hard to understand or even if we don't like it. But note as well that God's decree is purposeful. He acts according to his purpose. He has a purpose in what he does. He's not just randomly controlling things, but he is carrying things out with a definite goal and purpose in mind. Everything happens and is aimed at bringing about that purpose. Things are not moving haphazardly along. They are all carefully designed to bring about what God wants. It's like it is for you if you're writing a paper. You don't just throw a bunch of letters down on the page, just peck out a bunch of letters on your keyboard, but you put each letter down according to a plan so that words are formed and the words are arranged so that paragraphs are formed and the paragraphs are put together to bring about the story or the message or whatever it is that you planned, what you wished to say and communicate. It's very absurd for atheists to see all the design that's built into the creation of the world and to assume that there's no designer. A whole bunch of stuff just kind of plopped together and just perfectly. It's equally as absurd to suppose that this designer doesn't have a definite purpose in all that comes about. And it's wrong to think that because he 
It's wrong to think that because he has clearly revealed in his word that he works all things according to the counsel of his will. The scripture also tells us what God's purpose is. If you look at Romans eleven thirty six, you can see that. This verse speaks of God's purposeful decree. Romans eleven thirty six: for of him and through him and to him are all things to whom be glory forever. Amen. Of him are all things. Of God are all things. What does that mean? It means that it's all by his plan. Through him are all things. It means that he brings it about. He, he brings it about the things that he has planned. And to him are all things. It means that he brings all things about according to the purpose. As we've been saying, according to his purposes. And then it suggests to us that what God's purpose is, it tells us what God's purpose is when it says, to whom be glory forever. The purpose of God is especially clear in Ephesians chapter 1, where Paul is talking about how God has carried out his plan to save us. And as he does, there are three times in chapter 1 when he says something like, to the praise of the glory of his grace. Okay? So he says, I saved you for the praise of the glory of my grace. God's ultimate purpose is to glorify himself. Romans 9 not only tells us that God saves people, none of whom deserve it, to show off the glory of his grace, but it also tells us that he raises up the wicked and hardens them to show off the glory of his wrath. You know how that works? It works when God judges them. He makes them powerful and their power makes them more and more arrogant and forgetful of God. And then he judges them and brings them down. He raises them up with power and they become more and more defiant against God because of the wicked heart that is in them. And then God judges them and everyone sees the greatness of God when he does that. You may not like that. It's a hard truth, but that God does everything for his own glory ought to make you very glad. It's the most wonderful thing that God does this. He made us to love beautiful and glorious things. We're warped now by the fall, and so we often love things that are not good. But we still have love for the lovely to some extent. And you see, God made us this way because it's his purpose to show off his glory to us as his creatures. If we had not fallen into sin, our love for beauty, truth, and goodness would have caused us to always take great delight in God. We would have seen his beauty. God made us to delight in himself. Now we struggle sometimes to see it. We have to grow in our understanding and our love for God. Seeing the glory of God is the only thing, though, that can make us truly happy. Of course, it will make us miserable to see his glory if we're not reconciled to him through Christ, if we're not saved. If we don't have our sins forgiven, his glory will be in our punishment. That would be awful. But if we're forgiven and justified in Christ, then we should be delighted that God has made it his ultimate purpose to show off his glory. For all eternity, it will be our privilege to behold his glory and excellence and to delight in the discovery of who he is and to live as a reflection of his glory. 
to be filled with human love and beauty and holiness patterned after his divine love and beauty and holiness. And God will be showing off how good he is for all eternity in the way he treats us as his children, caring for us. And we will see more and more the depths of his mercy in Christ while we were in this life. I think it's very interesting that in Hebrews 11, it mentions that if all that God had to give to Abraham was in this life, that God would be ashamed to be called his God. It wouldn't be very glorious if all, all the stuff that Abraham got is not, it's nothing compared to what God gives to his people. He'd be ashamed if that's all it was. He's prepared things for us that are far beyond what we receive in this world. Because we are fallen, though, you see, it's natural for us to resent God for planning everything with a view to bringing glory to his name. We ought to delight in it, as I was just saying. But it seems selfish to us because we're fallen. But when he saves us, he helps us to get over this wrong way of thinking. We we resent that God would do everything for his glory because wouldn't it be obnoxious if somebody, one of us, decided to do everything for for our own glory? (laughs) Because any glory that a creature has comes from God. But it should make you very happy that God is carrying out his ultimate decree to bring glory to himself. Because nothing will make you so happy is to see and behold the glory of God. Things are not happening randomly, but they are moving toward the glorious goal every day. Things are happening right now, every minute, to bring that about. You say, what things? Everything. Whatever you see. What a great comfort it is to know that God's purpose is being brought forth. If you get coronavirus, it's God's purpose for His glory. If you don't, It's for God's purpose, for God's glory. If you get something worse, it's for His glory. If you get run over by a car on the way home, that's for God's glory. So everything brings about that purpose. And if we know Him, then we're walking along delighting in His glory as it is revealed and unfolded. Now, it doesn't mean that things won't be hard for us. The cross was not at all pleasant that Jesus didn't have any desire for the cross itself. But in John 17, He prayed that the Father would be glorified. Through that and that was his delight okay well let's see let's see next then that god's decree is his eternal purpose the catechism summarizes the teaching of scripture as saying that god's decree is his eternal purpose his decree is called his eternal purpose because he planned it out in eternity before he put it in effect the scripture frequently affirms this in ephesians 1 4 it says that god chose us for salvation before the foundation of the world So it wasn't after God saw what we were like that he chose us. It was not even after we fell that God chose to do this. But he planned it all from before the foundation of the world, before the world was laid, foundation was laid. The same thing is said about Christ by Peter, that he was foreordained before the foundation of the world, but was manifested in these last times for you. So even though Christ did not come until 2,000 years ago to redeem us, it was decreed before the world was made. God already had it planned. 
And in Acts 15, 18, we're told that known to God from eternity are all his works. So God not only knew the big things that he would do from eternity, but he knew all of his works. So you see that God does not plan things out as he goes along like we do. We have to do that because we don't know what's going to happen. So we have to wait and see what happens. And then we plan the next step. The plan, though, for God is already settled and it will not be modified and it cannot be modified. God already knows what he's going to do. The plan is already finished. But don't misapply this. Very important. He knows from eternity. We do not know. And if we're alive, as far as we're concerned, we can change the direction of things in our life as we have ability to do that. You do this in little things all the time. For example, you're walking down the street. You say, hey, it's too cold. And you turn around and go back. You just change direction of, your, of what you were doing. You, you, you were going one, and you, you went another way. God decreed that you would do that, so you didn't change what He had planned. <laughs> he, he decrees everything. But you changed what you had planned. You were going to go a walk and you decide not to. In a much more significant way, you can change whether you spend eternity in heaven or in hell. If you're not in Christ, if you're in rebellion against God and against His salvation, God commands you, all people everywhere, to repent and turn to Christ. If you do, you'll be saved. Complete change. You'll be completely, a complete change in your direction. Your concern is not to know what God decreed. You cannot know until it's too late. It's your concern to repent and come to Jesus for salvation, or you will end up in hell forever with no way to escape. Some people will say, well, I don't know whether I'm chosen. Of course you don't. I don't know either. Don't, I don't know about it, whether you're chosen or not. But God calls you to repent, and if you do, then you'll be with Him in glory. There are, of course, certain parts of his plan that God has revealed to us and other parts that he has not revealed. So he's not revealed to us a list of all the people who are going to be saved. But there are things that he has revealed to us. Deuteronomy 29, 29 speaks about this. It says it calls the things that God had planned, but has not revealed the secret things. He keeps them secret. And it calls the things that he has revealed the things that he's revealed to us and to our children that we may serve him. He has not told us what persons will come to believe in him for salvation, but he has revealed to us that whoever trusts in Jesus will be saved. That's his revealed will. His secret will is which specific persons that will be. Deuteronomy 29, 29 says the secret things belong to the Lord, our God keeps them to himself. But those things which are revealed belong to us and to our children forever that we may do all the words of this law. So you see, God revealed many things about the future, such as that Jesus is coming back or that whoever calls on the name of the Lord will be saved. And those things are revealed for our good. But the secret things are the things that he kept to himself. 
So the point is, yes, the plan is absolutely settled, but you're called to repent. (laughs) That God's plan is settled has some important implications. It means that his plan is, as the catechism quotes Ephesians to say, according to the counsel of his own will. In other words, it is all God's plan and not anybody else's plan. We were not around before he created us, and that's when he planned everything. So he did not take counsel from us when he made his plans. We were not consulted, neither were the angels, for the simple reason that we weren't created yet. (laughs) You don't consult people that aren't in existence. It's God's plan. It's his plan alone. That it was his eternal purpose also means that his plan is unassailable. That's another implication of it being eternal. That means that nobody can mess with it. Nobody can alter it. Nobody can change what he has planned. No angel, no devil, no human being, no king, no so-called God. Nobody can change what God has planned. His plan will flow out perfectly just as he planned. Of course, I'm not saying that men and devils cannot disobey what God has commanded. They can certainly do that. They do that all the time. But when they do, they're only doing what God has already planned. Their rebellion is their own action and it is sinful, but it doesn't change what God has decreed. Instead, their wicked, wicked, action contribute, wicked actions contribute in God's overall plan to the fulfilling of His purpose. So you might say that when it comes to the secret things, they do God's will, but when it comes to the revealed things, they disobey God's will. So when somebody does something wrong, they're disobeying God's will as far as what he's revealed to them, but they're fulfilling his will as far as what he's planned. When Pharaoh hardens his heart and he withholds the people and won't let them go, that was exactly what God planned. But it was rebellion against God for Pharaoh. Learn to rejoice in the fact that God's plan is settled from eternity. I say learn Because as fallen creatures, it's not natural for us to delight in that fact. We're stupid enough to think that it would be better if we could modify God's plans here and there. We think that a lot, don't we? It's just stupid of us, but, but that's what we think. Before, I pointed out that the Scripture shows us that God is working all things for the purpose of bringing glory to Himself. And that if we are reconciled to Him in Christ, God's glory is the only thing that can make us truly happy and fulfilled for all eternity. That's why we should be glad that we can't mess with his plans. We would destroy the manifestation of God's glory and our own happiness if we did have the ability to modify God's plan. So be glad that you can't change his plans. But I tell you, even the best of God's people struggle with what God does at times. Take godly Job, the man that God told us was blameless and upright and more godly than any other man. The man who lost his children and his property, and then after that, he did this. Job 1.20 Then Job arose, tore his robe, shaved his head, and he fell to the ground and worshipped. And he said, Naked I came from my mother's womb, and naked shall I return there. The Lord gave, and the Lord has taken away. Blessed be the name of the Lord. In all of this, Job did not sin. But then God let Satan attack Job's body and strike him with a miserable, painful affliction. And then to add to that terrible pain, Job's friends came and condemned him, 
saying that all this came upon him because of some sin that he had done and was now hiding and not admitting and confessing. After a long time of this, Job started to complain about the way God was governing things. He said, I don't think the way you're governing things is really very good. But God put Job in his place for trying to be his counselor. God does not take counsel from men. And he said to Job, Job 38, 4, Where were you when I laid the foundations of the earth? Tell me if you have understanding. If you take it upon yourself to counsel me and tell me how things should be done, then I suppose you must have been there telling me what to do when I made the world. He said this and many similar things to Job about how he orders all things in heaven and on earth by his wisdom that far beyond anything that Job could give counsel about. Job got the point, and so should we. It is not for you to counsel God. In Job chapter 40, we see what happened. Job 40 verse 1. Moreover, the Lord answered Job and said, Shall the one who contends with the Almighty correct him? He who rebukes God, let him answer it. And Job answered the Lord and said, Behold, I am vile. What shall I answer you? I lay my hand over my mouth. Once I have spoken, but I will not answer. Yes, twice, but I will proceed no further. Instead of questioning what God does, then learn to delight in the fact that he knows what he's doing and that his plan is marvelously wonderful and perfect. Don't try to counsel him. Accept what he does in the joy that he knows what he's doing and will not fail. You don't have to see the purpose of each event and how it fits to bring about the whole. Just rejoice that God knows that he makes no mistake. Now, let me put a qualifier on there, too. There are things that you should plead before God if you have things, for example, that he has promised or things like that that you don't see are being fulfilled. And you cry out to God for those things. Like, for instance, if you're pulling away from God, maybe you feel your heart turning away and you're starting to lust after things that are not of God. You don't say, well, it's God's plan. I, I accept God's plan, whatever it is. No, 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 no. That's not what you... It, it's God's call to you that when that happens, it's your duty to pray against that wandering heart that's turning away from God and to plead with Him to bring you back and not to accept that. Or if you see your children going away like that, you don't say, oh, well, God will do whatever He'll do. No, no, no. No, God's told you, He's commanded you to pray about those things. It is your duty to do so. Now then, whatever happens, once it's happened, then we have to accept what God has done without bitterness, knowing that it's part of His overall plan. Okay, now let's move on to the third thing that we need to see the Scripture teaches us about God's decree. And that is, we've more or less already seen this in many ways, but God's decree is all-encompassing. Absolutely nothing happens but what God planned. He planned everything that happens right down to the last detail. He has ordained, Ephesians 1.11, whatsoever comes to pass. So that's everything. It excludes nothing. I'm going to wait to look at the details about this when we get to question 11 on providence. 
But for now, I want you to know that it includes the action of wicked men and devils. God decreed all of their actions, and these fall out according to His decree. Again, I'm not going into the details now, I'm just summarizing here. His plan, I'll give you examples in the future. His plan also includes the smallest details. There is nothing random at all. It includes the number of hairs on your head, Luke 12, 7, and the casting of lots or the flipping of a coin. How that comes out, Proverbs 16, 33. It includes painful things as well as pleasant things. God gives daily bread, and He also gives famines. Amos 3, 6, if there is calamity in a city, will not the Lord have done it? Saw that this morning. So God's plan is all-encompassing. This means that you are to respond to God in everything. If you are a believer, give thanks for all that He does, good or bad, big or little, hard or easy. That includes things like the coronavirus. It is all to bring about His glorious purpose. If you're not a believer, then repent at once. How will you succeed if you continue to fight against God? Oddly enough, sometimes we in our wickedness use God's decree as a reason not to repent. I mentioned this before. How, we will say, how can I repent if God hasn't decreed it? But that's idiotic. We should rather say, how can I expect to succeed if I continue to resist God? That is what was sure to fail, resisting God. So don't you see, all of you, that the future is with God. His plans will be perfectly accomplished. What confidence and assurance that can give you if only you will be reconciled to Him. He calls all people everywhere to repent and believe. You can't change what God has decreed, but you can completely change where you will spend eternity if you will come to Him to be saved. He has promised that all who come to Him, He will not cast out. Please stand and let's pray. Gracious Heavenly Father, we praise You and thank You that You are the God who is, has authority over all things. Like the centurion recognized, You just simply say that Someone be healed, and they're healed. You call the world to being and into being, and it comes into being. There's nothing, Lord, that is beyond you. What you decree is what happens. And we pray, O oh Lord, that you would teach us to learn to worship you as the God who has that kind of authority. And that we would recognize, Lord, and deal with you as one who who has that kind of authority, that we would not try to change that or deny that, but that we would rather come into sync with that. And we would realize, Lord, that yes, we are fully responsible for how we live our life and what we do and what you've called us to do. We're responsible for that. But Father, at the same time, all things fall out according to your plan and purpose. We praise you, O Lord, that we can trust you to bring about your glorious end. And that is the glory of your name, the glory of your, of your person, Lord, to be seen. We thank you, Lord, that if we are in Christ, then that will be our greatest joy for all eternity, is to see your glory revealed to us. You created us with an ability to 
appreciate glory, to delight in glory. And there's none that are even close to so glorious as you. We praise you, O Lord, that you are the only true God that when others come along and they claim to be God's, where have they told us the future? Where have they explained the past to us? You know, sometimes they might try to do that, but they have no ability to show an integrated plan and to show the purposes that they have. We thank you, O Lord, that you alone are the one who does that, that we might know that you are God and that these other gods are not. I pray, Lord, that you would humble us and help us to to bow before you in, in reverence, that we would not complain about what you have decreed, that when things are hard for us, that we would seek your glory. We thank you for how our Lord Jesus Christ did that all the way to the cross, that he sought your glory. Yes, he prayed for relief. He prayed if it was possible to be taken away. But nevertheless, when it was not so, he went with patience all the way to the cross and bore the pain of hell for us. And he rose up giving glory to you and receiving glory to himself. We praise you, Lord. Help us then to trust you also, Lord, and to walk in uh, submission to what you have decreed as it is unfolded before us. We pray these things in Jesus' name. Amen. The decrees of God receive now the blessing of the Lord. May God make you worthy of his calling and may he fulfill the good pleasure of his goodness that the name of our Lord Jesus Christ may be glorified in you and you in him according to the grace of God and the Lord Jesus Christ. Amen.